1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Rin Beeth, and I'm a host on the Human Rights Channel. Today, we have Eric Stanley here to discuss their new book, Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans Queer Ungovernable. Eric Stanley is an Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks for coming on the show, Eric.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you.
1: So... I'm going to start with the very, very, very beginning of this book. Um, I am a huge fan of acknowledgments. I always read them. Um, And reading through your acknowledgments, I was really struck by the emphasis on collective work that went into the creating of this and what you call pedagogies of action. I was wondering if we could start this conversation, um, if you'd be willing to speak a little bit more into how this shaped your work.
2: Sure. So... um... You know, everything that I ever do that I think is really important, I've done with other people. And I'm deeply um, formed by collective action, particularly, you know, street-based, kind of radical trans and queer direct action organizing. So that's the the scene that I come from. And, you know, oftentimes the Academy and things like writing a solo, theoretically solo-authored book are incredibly antagonistic to that that acknowledgement, right, that of course, our work is never only ours, right, and it's always built in and with and through community. And, um, you know, as I talk about in the book, the materiality of my life is also only made possible through, you know, these kind of networks of, of care and of you know collective thinking that are so important to me so you know whenever i have the chance i always return to that because i think it's really important because it also again disrupts the idea that there's this kind of singular really smart really important person when of course that's never the case that we're always formed in you know in relationality with all kinds of people i
1: really i really like that so um i guess uh, moving to um, another part at the beginning of of the book, um, your the the book itself I think really begins with a point about how there's a lot of violence <laughs> described in this book, um, and you also state a kind of refusal to quote unquote reproduce the incident. And this refusal comes up throughout the book. And while I was reading this, it really reminded me, um, I'm an anthropologist, and it, it reminded me of Audra Simpson's um, idea of ethnographic refusal as she elaborates in Mohawk Interruptus. And so super short, it's a refusal that is seen as an alternative to recognition, something practiced by those in Kahnawake. Um, And she herself is a researcher who is Mohawk and from Ganawage. And so I would, I would just be curious to hear you speak a little bit to how refusal por- forms both part of the book's text um, and also perhaps the research practice, like the, the process of, of creating this, this text.
2: Yeah. So this book um, took me about 15 years to write, actually, from when I first started writing it. Um, some of the writing I did in you know, graduate uh, seminars a very long time ago. And, you know, what I was doing then is I was, you know, just thinking about this question of the ever-growing archive of anti-trans and queer violence, right? And this was, you know, almost before the internet or before my accessibility to the internet. Um, So I had a a paper file where I would like, you know, tear out things from the newspaper and from magazines of these really horrible stories, right? And I didn't know what I was going to do with them. Um, You know, and I was like kind of layering those on top of, you know, personal experiences and the experiences of people in my community and also the organizing that we were doing at that time. Um, You know, this kind of archive, this really brutal archive just kept growing. Um, And so for me, it felt really important that I attempt to theorize that kind of continually growing archive while also, of course, not wanting to re-violate people that are always already subjected to massive forms of violence, right? So I felt in a certain sense, ethically caught in a productive way, right? You know, looking and looking away are both, I would say simultaneously forms of abstracting violence from their scenes, right? They're also forms of accumulation, Um, you know? And so instead of in the final instance, which is to say the book, you know, assuming that I could have some sort of, I don't know, pure space of, of clarity outside of the scene. I just tried to stay with it with as much care and precision as I could. You know, at some times I would be more descriptive, at other times I would back away from that, attempting to kind of always hold that line, which, you know, I myself within the text attempt to place it under duress, right? I question it you know, almost on every page. I'm like, I'm doing this. I don't know if I should be doing this. I still don't know if I should be doing this. But nonetheless, the murders continue, the violence continues and our kind of refusal to acknowledge the enormity and both the, both the enormity and the pageantry, the way in which there are like the similarities in these forms of violence. Um, you know, we're not getting out of it by not paying attention. Um, you know, and so I think that, and I have, um, as I'm sure you know, at the beginning, I have this little section called Reading with Care, where, of course, I want people you know, to be aware of what they're about to to sit with, right? Because um, I, again, I'm not attempting to traumatize people or re-traumatize people, but nonetheless, you know, I think that these are, um, you know, this archive needs to be faced if we indeed want to obliterate it, which is what I want to do.
1: Throughout the book, I was really struck by your discussions about law and violence and these these discussions, these points go, you know, and engage police violence, right? But it goes way beyond that. Like you engage with legal systems and structures themselves as um, as being part of of this this archive of violence. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit. Um, and I know this is quite broad, but if you could speak a little bit to how you see these links between law and violence.
2: Sure. So you know, the book is in its most basic form an abolitionist critique of violence, right? So if we can't look towards the law as, you know, the necessary space of relief, then where do we go, right? And so to get there, you know, I start with um, Jacques Derrida's reading of Walter Benjamin's, um, you know, critique of violence, which I think in a certain sense opens up the question of the law as that which, you know, both constitutes the limit and what you know what counts as violence and is outside of that same constitution, and you know that's a theoretical point. But I think the point is made by all kinds of other theorists that are experiencing police violence, for example. Right, it's the same theorization, um, and so and we see this time. You know, that's that's in the kind of more abstracted theoretical sense. But then we see this time and again when people you know seek remedy for something like police violence through the legal structure, right? Um, you know, and it's always partial at best. And of course, what you know, what accountability, what accountability might look like under that system is always a structural impossibility. Um, you know, and this 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 both comes from you know reading uh, you know people that are critical of the you know critical the criminal punishment system, as well as kind of organizing work that time and again shows me that the law you know is actually the proliferation of violence and not. Violence cessation, and so then, what do we do, right? What is to be done, um, which is a really big question, and I don't assume that I can answer that. But what hopefully I can do is pry open that question, right? Because what we see, at least in in the nightmare named the United States, is whenever you know a trans or a queer person is murdered, we're like, oh, we need to catch that person, that singular person, and punish them. And it's not, of course, that those people should not be held accountable, but what is the entire system that, you know, not only allows the ongoingness of this murder, but indeed mandates it? So, you know, that's a much larger question um, that is actually antagonistic to the law.
1: So building on um, your really provocative, and I I mean that as, as the highest of compliments points about law and violence, um... I was really struck by your engagement with the idea of democracy. Um, I just, I, I wasn't expecting it when I, when I picked up this book um, a while ago, and and, and revisiting it for our, our conversation today, it was just, it struck me again. Um, and so, as you, as you write on on page one hundred and sixteen, democracy's durability is built at least in part through its mythic past, which even in ancient Athens was only mythological. And I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how democracy forms a a part of this? Because I I think for, I think for many who are not considering um, anti-trans, anti-queer violence and the way that you are that link between this kind of violence and democracy might not be so, so clear.
2: Sure. Yeah. That might, that I think probably is the most provocative part of the book. Um, Yeah. So for people that haven't read it, essentially, I attempt to make a provisional, um, argument, I guess, questioning, I'm not sure what the right word is, of the very idea of democracy, right? And I, I came to this point because, you know, I was writing, I was kind of writing the coda, which is where this is, um, you know, during the time of Trump's election, people were like, you know, this is not normal. This is, you know, outside of the otherwise smooth space of the democratic form. Um, and of course it is democracy in action, right? Um, and at the same time, people were, you know, were arguing that the concept of democracy itself oftentimes gets left as if it's self-evident, right? And so people attach all kinds of desires onto it without understanding what its his- history is, right? And that that history's presence, as well as understanding, you know, how it has always functioned, right? We're at- always attempting to perfect this thing that might already be at its limit. Right. Of course. And I, you know, I start in Athens because I'm working with CLR James um, in the ways in which, you know, even in Athens, of course, enslaved people and women were outside the polis, right. The, the kind of idea of citizenship. And that has been, of course, through, you know, this uh, through, through it's like kind of uh, his historical unfolding of the concept of democracy. So, It was also interesting to me because, you know, we have someone like R. James, who, you know, I've learned so much from, you know, arguing for a more democratic state and someone like George Bush or Trump also arguing for a more democratic state, right? So then what is its substance? Um, What is its form? If everyone's like, we need more of this thing, um, you know, that's an interesting set of questions. And so for me, as a kind of experiment, I wanted to ask, you know, how could we take an abolitionist critique to the very idea of democracy? Of course, not towards totalitarianism or some other worse form of governance, but, you know, towards exploring what other ways of being together in the world might look like, right? And so it's not prescriptive. I don't have like a 10 point program. You know, I'm not like, we need to get rid of this. We need to do this. We need to pack the court. We need to do that, whatever. I simply want to ask the question, what is democracy? And perhaps we're already living at its limit, as I already said. And if so, then perhaps we need new forms of being together in the world, because there's many, many ones. And why is it this one that we've settled on?
1: Yeah, it's, I don't know, it was, it was a really fascinating, um, I don't know, engagement, a really fascinating question that I'm, I'm still sitting with many, many months later. And I, I appreciate you um, raising this. Um, as a bit of a a turn away from um, from law and democracy, in in chapter three, um, you engage with the idea of the filmic, um, both at a at a, a theoretical level, but bringing the readers back to um, the example. Um, I, I I guess I hesitate to say the example, but of an instance, I guess of. Um a police surveillance tape of a horrific beating of a black trans woman. And I would be curious to hear you speak a little bit to um, how this idea of the filmic can help get at this idea of of an atmosphere of violence. Um, and I, I was just particularly struck by the ways that you talked about the filmic um, in the context of um, like anti-black, anti, Queer anti trans violence, all of those, all of those layers.
2: Yeah, so um, you know that chapter begins with this, as you said, this really awful, horrific and brutal videotape of Dwana Johnson being beaten by um, a number of police officers. And after her beating, she went on a kind of mini press tour where she wanted people to see the tape, right, to, so that she had some sort of like collective witnessing of what happened to her um and um you know so that's an interesting place of departure because theoretically it opens up the collective viewing process because it's what the survivor wants but nonetheless right all the mechanisms of of the politics of looking are still there so we think we've gotten out of it but we're still in it so i thought that that was really important um it was also you know i was doing some solidarity work around her case at the time so it was like something i was organizing around as well um and you know, so what happens in short? I'll try to condense the story. Is that um, you know, there's a really awful beating tape. Um, it's incredibly apparent what's happening. You know, a police officer puts handcuffs on on his hand and punches her in the face. It's it's really awful. She fights back, and I think that's really important to note. Um, and eventually, the the officer goes to trial, and there's a mistrial, right? So the the, the jury watches this video where she's seated and being punched by this you know, she's a black trans woman, he's a white man, um, cis man, I'm assuming, um, punching this woman in the face repeatedly. And, you know, they can't reach a guilty verdict, right? And so there's something about, um, you know, my argument, which goes back through much, um, you know, black visual culture theory um, and thinking with people like David Marriott and many other people. And again, back to the Rodney King tape where a lot of this kind of initial um, theorization, at least in the U.S. context, was coming from and then much older work as well. Um, you know, and, and instead of just thinking about what um, what we're seeing, like what what the actual picture is, I was interested in what, um, you know, going back to the question of form, essentially, um, which, you know, sometimes drops out of, you know, our understanding of things like um, police beating tapes, right? And so, you know, again, working with, you know, feminist and um, Black visual culture theorists, um, you know, I returned to this question, like, is there something in the form of the visual itself that is indeed um, anti-Black and anti-trans, right? Um, so that these viewers could view that tape and actually see the officer as the person that was under duress and not the woman that's seated and being beaten by a group of men. Right. Because that's the question that I think is important. Like, how is it that they literally can see the tape while not seeing what's happening? Right. And we could, of course, excuse it by kind of individualistic, you know, anti-Black and anti-trans phobias or antagonisms. And I'm sure that's part of it. But I think that there's something much larger. And indeed, that's much more terrifying. Right. Right because I'm always trying to de-individualize things because I think that that allows us these really easy answers that actually continue harm and don't end the harm, right? Because we're like, oh, those were just some bad jurors. We need the right jurors in here, right? We need a kind of representative jury, but then the representative jury finds the same. So it just keeps going on and on and on, right? Which grows the legal system. And so, um, you know, for me, the question of the visual and, in particular, the filmic, right—the idea of the moving image, or at least the digital, or in this case, the digital image—you um, know, this was an attempt to think um, on the level of form around things that we oftentimes only li- only um, analyze at the level of image, right? We're seeing this woman being beaten by this man, but what is about the filmic itself that actually has that kind of built-in precondition of our ways of seeing?
1: I have a, um, a follow-up question um, about that video and the way that you engage with it in the in the chapter. Um, there's a point um, when you're talking about the circulation of of the video of the the beating of, of Duana Johnson. Um, and I was just I was so struck and like I, I can feel myself tearing up now because it was just like it just really hit me. Um, this question that you ask of how then might we account for, or more precisely, how might we be, be accountable to Joanna Johnson as we consume her image? And I'm, I'm wondering how does this idea of accountability figure in both your approach to this material or of these ideas or, or instances of violence, as well as in the questions that you're, you're asking the reader, the questions that you're, you're giving us to, to sit with.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that right. I mean, like we were like we started talking about, of course, viewing, reading, um, they're always consumptive processes, right? Um, so, what would it mean to make ourselves kind of radically vulnerable to that reality versus hiding it, which is what the entire academic enterprise is based off of? And <laughs> so, you know. Um, And, you know, I think in a certain sense, that's a necessarily unanswerable question, right? The only way that we could be accountable to Dewana Johnson is by destroying the world, which destroyed her. And, you know, that's a really big project, but a project that I think that we all need to be involved in, right? Because, um, you know, she actually was, a few months after the beating, tape murdered, and there's lots of speculation that it was done by perhaps somebody from the police department because the way that it was done, and so then she could not testify against um, the person that beat her, um, and so I think that um, you know the question of accountability, especially to those that are already gone, right? Those that are already lost to the world, um, you know, is a question that we must allow ourselves to be haunted by right? And that's, you know, and again, that's a place of departure. And I think that that's on the kind of more the- theoretical level. But then I also think that, you know, this book is always trying to like, it's working at this kind of meta theoretical level, but then it also is incredibly like grounded in the world. And I think that those are like the w- the, the the areas I'm always shuttling through. Um, you know, but it can also look like organizing towards abolition, right? Getting rid of the Memphis Police Department would be one way to do justice, for Dewana Johnson, right? It could look like sending books to people inside prison jails and detention centers and psych jails, right? Which is, you know, my, my very small author profits from this book go to that, right? And same with captive genders and other things, right? Because it's like the least I can do um, while also continuing all of us to engage in organizing work. Right, there's so much to be done, and there's ways for all of us to plug in, whatever our kind of level of accessibility is. Right, there's always things to be done, and there's space for all of us to be doing them. And so, you know, in the same way that the image doesn't begin or end with the tape, the story and its narration doesn't end with the book. Right, Um, and so what would it mean for a book to have an afterlife that, of course, inspires action? And all the books that I love do that for me, and so I'm hoping that this. You know, people are always like, well, you know, what can this book do? And I'm like, I don't actually know, <laughs> you know, maybe nothing. Uh, maybe you could like throw it through a window. I don't know. But, um, you know, at, at best, hopefully it can be, you know, following people like Ruthie, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you know, theory can be a kind of plan towards action. Um, and so I hope that this can, this can this can do something like that. But I don't know.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: I mean just broadly I was struck by the engagement with the visual throughout this book um it was it was just it was really it left me with a lot to to think through um I was I was additionally really struck by um the the fourth chapter um about um about suicide and I was I was hoping you could Perhaps speak a, a little bit about i, I guess maybe a, a a different way of of framing a question I haven't asked yet is um the idea of the death drop um, I found a really um, i don't know, like very visceral um metaphor in so many so many different ways. There's so many levels in which you engaged with it, and so. I don't know. I'd, I'd never read um, writing about um, trans queer suicide in this way that that dealt with it and the the performance of the deaf, Anyway, I'd I would love to hear what you what you have to say, um, or uh, maybe giving uh, li- listeners a little bit of context about this.
2: Yeah. So, um, hmm. so you know, I, when I was writing that chapter and on to our contemporary moment. You know, of course, it was like one of those um, spaces when, you know, the the news of this, um, you know, alleged and real kind of pandemic or epidemic of trans and queer youth suicides w- was happening, right? So it started at that moment. And, um, and something that I was attempting to pay attention to was, um, of course, the everydayness of of the phenomenon right in both of suicide and suicidality um probably more powerfully um and again not to aestheticize um what people are choosing or, or not choosing to do or even what choice means in that instance right so i'm trying to put the very idea of choice under duress under question right throwing that into jeopardy um while also you know attempting to pay close attention to like for example, I do a reading of um, this young person named Seth Walsh, their suicide note and their family like put out the suicide note into this whole video. And so they wanted again, they wanted they wanted lots of people to see it, but does that allow us to see it? I don't know. But they, you know, are someone that took their own life, right? Were forced to take their own life, right? I call suicide murder by other means, because I think it is, um, because of the constant harassment that they faced at school um, that was condoned by the school administration, right? This is their story, it's many of our own stories, right? I was kicked out of school for, at 14 for a similar situation. And so, um, you know, they left this suicide note that was so, um, I don't know, catastrophically beautiful, so eloquent and so mm, theoretically engaging that it felt like, you know, to leave that out is, again, a kind of second-order displacement that hides hides the very real violence that they were facing, right? So to turn it into a singularly tragic story where they're like a young person that was forced to kill themselves, like, yes, that's part of the story. But they were also theorizing the torment that they were experiencing. So how do we hold both of those together? Um, you know, and that's one of the questions. And I read this against... Um, people that are incarcerated that have also attempted, um, to take their own lives and the ways in which they're punished for attempting to do that. Right. Because we always think, or we oftentimes think that, you know, the kind of most brutal form of state power is death, but there might be something on the other side of that and that's forced life. Um, which is a hard thing to think about, right? What is it like, what forms of of life are more unlivable than death, right? That's the question that I ask. Um, You know, and people that are, you know, living the slow death of carceral life and solitary confinement know this well, right? That literally is the architecture of forced death, right? Um, And so, you know, trying to hold both of the, so then kind of, reading these two scenes or these multiple scenes in relationship with each other, right? So we have the kind of more classical young person that's um, harassed um, for being gender nonconforming or some something like that. Those are not words that they use to describe themselves as far as I know. But, um, you know, forced to death and then other people that are forced to live, right? Um, and so it's th- these, these really, um, I don't know, uh, intense polls, and so I'm trying to think about how they're working in tandem with each other. Um, and at the same time, right, I'm also interested in um, cases like Ashley Diamond, who um, was, at the time of writing this, um, an incarcerated black um, trans woman in Georgia. Um, she was also put in solitary confinement. She's out right now. She There's ways to support her. You can look it up online and please um, support her. Um, Life on the outside, Um, in you know, she was held in solitary confinement, but she, along with other prisoners, um, made videos and smuggled them out, right? Kind of chronicling the harassment and the terror um, that they were living. And for me, it felt important to kind of hold that again, again, with all these other scenes, right? Because. Even in the spaces of impossibility, people are always finding ways to resist and fight back, right? And so I understand her not, you know, not as simply a kind of, you know, testament to the brutality, but indeed she's a theorist and she's a filmmaker. Um, so what if she's read in those ways as opposed to an example, which is what people oftentimes do, right? People just become examples, um, you know, because it opens up yet another door for us to think about the complexities of of the scene and i'm emphatic in the beginning of this chapter that i want us to figure out ways to keep each other alive right so that's my place of departure so it's not a kind of you know celebration of self-negation like i'm clear about that but nonetheless you know i again i think that we need more thinking more theorization um not simply to aestheticize these things but indeed to end them like what is the world? What 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 ends of the world are necessary so that young people or any people, you know, are not forced towards this end.
1: Throughout um, throughout the book, uh, you bring up points about narrative, um, and I was I was struck by this as well. in and what you were saying a, a few moments ago of even you know thinking about this book as a point of of departure and thinking about, okay, you know, what comes after it. Um, but in, in the book you write about, you know, how to narrativize acts of violence, or, um, you describe, um, a murder as an extra, uh, diegetic, uh, final scene. Um, so I, I would be curious how the idea of narrative, um, figured into, into the creation of this work, or even how you see, um, what I what I heard you call an archive, right? Of these these acts of violence.
2: Yeah. Um, so the first chapter, I'm. So the way, the way that the story goes, I would say, right, is that um, you know an anti-trans or queer an act of anti-trans or queer violence or murder will happen. Um, the media narrativeizes it as a like singularly bad phobic person, and that person maybe needs to be put away in prison or jail, and that everything else will keep going fine, right? So that's how how it starts. Um, and of course, we know that that's not the case. And so, um, you know, I was interested in thinking about building this archive, but not through kind of. Traditional data or records collecting, right? Because that's what is now available, and it's problematic for all kinds of reasons. But, it, but in its most basic sense, right? What does it mean to turn the kind of mm, terrorizing and agony of people's lives and deaths into data points, right? Into just numbers in an archive? And what do we know if the number of queer people murdered this year goes from like seventy-three to seventy-four or seventy-eight, like? Again, how does that reproduce a kind of second-order act of violence, um, erasing the specificity and that specificity's generalization under, like the kind of fantasy of the numerical reality, right? So if we if we can't go that route, then what other routes could we go? Um, you know, and I think that um, this is an archive. As much as it is a kind of counter archive that places the idea of the archive into jeopardy itself, right? Because it's incomplete, it's partial, it's falling to pieces, it's assembled momentarily by me, and somebody else would assemble it very differently. Um, a lot of it's just almost by chance, and so um, you know, it's it, it it it's it's there hopefully. Um, long enough to hold together so that it can build out some form of, you know, knowledge or collective understanding, um, to get us somewhere different, but I don't think it has a kind of durability and shouldn't have a durability beyond that. Like I'm not interested in like, a you know, an archiving anti trans and queer hate project. Like that's not where, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, again, I think because, um, you know, I'm so interested in, um, you know, as we were talking about at the beginning, I don't show any pictures that are, you know, violent per se, or that are, you know, pictures of, of, of horrible things, but sometimes I do narrativize something, right? Because again, this this project, there's this question of looking and looking away. And so, you know, how I do that um, feels really important to me. Um, and again, it can be incredibly failed. Um, you know, there's all kinds of questions I have around it. But you know, I attempt to write and to narrativize, um these really, you know, unthinkable scenes of violence with as much, again, care and precision as I can. Um, yeah, while also paying attention to the specificity, which seems really important to me, because you know, there <laughs> there is a kind of continuity in many of these scenes that is lost if we just, you know, look towards the numbers
1: yeah i was um i don't know building on on your wonderful response there i am am thinking a lot about how um, the the narratives that you that you do provide the the readers with do really seem to speak to the the tension um that you seem to be i don't know sitting with um struggling with sort of without a a concrete conclusion between the individual and the system, um, if I'm, if I'm reading this correctly.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, for example, in the cases of, in the case of Tawana Johnson and other scenes of police brutality, there are individual police officers that did really awful things, um, and must be held to account what that looks like. I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, if we stop there or if we hyper fixate on that, then that exonerates the entirety of the system that, again, not only allows this but mandates it, right? And so it's that kind of shuttling, I would say, between you know the individuals that are, you know, doing these really um, or enacting these really awful forms of abuse and harm, and sometimes murder, and the systems that um, support them.
1: Um, I noticed. Um, just a few times throughout the book, um, the use of the word wake. Um, And as well, I I am a, I don't know, unapologetic footnote reader, endnote note reader. Um, And so I did also notice the citation for Christina Sharpe's In the Wake on Blackness and Being. Um, So the, the introduction begins with the description of Martha P. Johnson's body in the Hudson River you you began the the book by writing the soft blue bat blue black wake rhythmically laps at the rocky shore, gravity's reminder of trans queer endurance on the edge of a city at the end of the world. I was wondering if you if you thought about or how how you might see wake as a theme throughout this book, um, or even, you know, if you want to say echoes or or something else like that, but just the idea of wake um really came through powerfully for me. Um and bits throughout
2: yes definitely i mean i'm deeply um thankful for her um, amazing work right and so, so shout out um definitely and you know and in, in, a, in a, the kind of larger constellation of particularly um, black feminists that have been thinking with the question of water and for for a long time right of course tied to the middle passage but much beyond that as well, um, in the ways that um, you know, there's something about the space um, there. I'm thinking about the piers in New York City, um, where well, the piers and the water's edge where um, Marsha P. Johnson's body was found, and of course, where lots of trans and queer of color life um, was was you know was lived until the hyper gentrification of the last. 15, 20 years of New York City. Um, And so there's something about that space in particular, um, the piers, um, the kind of ruins of the piers into the hyper gentrification of the condos that we have now um, that feels incredibly um, sacred, um, haunted, um, you know, there, there's something about the spatiality of it that I wanted to attempt to encapsulate, right? Because it, it 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 again kind of swings between both a scene of you know horrific violence, right, the possible probable murder of Marsha P. Johnson, um, and so much you know trans and queer sex and celebration and community and liveliness and. You know, Sylvia was living unhoused on, you know, towards the end of her life, you know, in that same area as well. And so it's like, how do we hold the messiness and the kind of, you know, they're not even contradictions, but the, the incommensurabilities of these spaces um, together, right? While not attempting to resolve any of it because it's unresolvable,
1: something um i i realized I, I touched on it briefly um earlier but i, I want to come back to it so, um a point that you make um a number of times throughout the book is thinking race and gender together um and it it comes up um not just in the instances of violence that you show you know for example the pulse shooting or um you know just other other examples throughout the book um, but also in terms of the theory where you where you ground yourself um and so i was hoping you could maybe say a little bit about um i don't know a, a little bit of, about that just because i was i was really i don't know excited um i guess just to see a really thoughtful consideration particularly when you're thinking about about an atmosphere of violence right about something that is um that is porous and broad and nonspecific in so many ways.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the anti-trans and queer violence is always racialized, right? It's always, it always lives and has its life within the scenes of here settler colonialism and that colonialism's ongoingness. Right. And so, um, you know, and it's not only beginning there, but it's staying there, right? So we can have no analysis, we can have no, whatever the thing is that people call trans studies, without um, without a, an ongoing and deep reckoning with an engagement with, you know, colonialism, with the instantiation and that instantiation's ongoingness of chattel slavery, right? Those are all the things that are To me, actually, foregrounded, right? And then my archive, in a certain sense, is is trans and queer people, most of whom are black and Latinx. I guess it's it's not exactly the words that they would use to describe themselves. And I always try to be specific, but um, you know. And so, to me, um, you know, that's the kind of political world that I come from. The um, you know intellectual genealogies that I understand myself within, um, you know, and that have formed me and continue to continue to form me, and also the conversations that are the most, um, you know, insurgent, right, that are pushing um, collective thought in the most um, radical, nuanced, and necessary ways, right, Um, and so that's where I kind of find my my grounding or something like that and my continued sources of instigation Um, and the people that i like to think with um yeah and so i think that you know this is not (laughs) the project could not be done without without all that collective thought
1: I was um, to to come back um, as my my last question about this really incredible book, um, and again, perhaps this is my uh, anthropological background coming through. But again, this tension between the general and the specific, um, but in particularly, um, for example, you note um, in the Pulse shooting, right, that it is it's an act it's it's shifts to become an act of violence against all Americans. Um, and when you discuss uh, instances of police violence, it's, you know, who are, who are these people acting, acting for, um, you know, whose names are they doing this of? And I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts a little, a little more about, about that broadening, right? not just the, the specificities of these instances, but sort of what is, and whose name is, is this happening? Or who is, who is claiming to be hurt here
2: yeah I mean the pulse um, shooting the then then again the kind of the the scene itself which is horrific and the subsequent narrativization which is again um, extending that initial scene of harm to our present day right because for people that don't know essentially what happened is that um, someone goes into the bar and shoots a bunch of people um, and its first narrativized or reported as an anti-trans um, or queer hate crime, right? It's at a gay bar, the Pulse. Um, but then later on, it gets kind of recuperated through, um, you know, white n- white nationalist understandings of, of the United States, um, that the shooter was not acting because it was a quote unquote gay bar, but um, was a you know a terrorist attack on. "Quote unquote," all Americans, right? Which of course means straight, white, um, Christian Americans, um, and that was really interesting to me to follow the kind of media coverage and the legal, the the court cases that came out came after it, right? And how that was switched around, right? How the hyper specificity that I think is cannot be um, deracinated from that case, right? That it was um, almost exclusively trans and queer people of color that were murdered. Um, and shot and harmed in other ways, um, right? That specificity of this becomes like obliterated under a generalization of quote unquote, Americanness, right? And who does that serve, right? To go back to your question, of course, we know that, that serves, you know, the settler state of, of, of the United States, um, right? So there is no um, atmosphere of anti-trans and queer violence. There are just, you know, uh, terrorists attempting to attack um, you know the otherwise peaceful united states right that's how the story gets re-narrativized. so it's you know tied up in all forms of islamophobia and um you know other forms of, of uh, racist antagonisms um in the court in the case and then what happens after it um so you know we have we have that and what's interesting you know so we have that the kind of um as you said the 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 specific to the hyper-generalized, right? To erase the specificity. And then we have the other move. Um, You know, I'm always thinking about my theorization of state power is um, actually always built through contradictions, right? I think the state works most vividly and most violently through um, forms of simultaneous exclusion and inclusion, right? That's one of the arguments of the book, right? Again, we can think about the suicide. It's not just about pushing people out; it's about pushing people out, then pulling them back in, so you can continue to terrorize them, right? Because that's just not enough, right? Death is not enough. Um, and so, I think that you know the state is always working in these in these um, you know n- not not just dualistic, but like kind of multifaceted, um, like a web or something like that. And so, um, you know, in, in instances of police violence, right? Of course, it's not the the generalized. Um, attack on uh, Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people, right? It's just that specific person, right? So it's the kind of going from the general to the hyper-specific when it wants to, and then the specific to the hyper-general when it also wants to, right? And these are you know, both in terms of policy um, and the media and the kind of narrativization, the way in which it functions and circulates in popular culture, right? And also just to, uh, I, this seems important to, um, clarify, when I'm thinking about the state, also the way that I think about the state, you know, it's not a kind of um, hyper-rigid abstraction that exists outside of the social um, that would allow us to blame some external force. Um, I mean, it does have a bunch of really forceful organizing principles like the police, but for me, it's the kind of collective projection of the social itself. Right? Um, You know, as we know, the for example, the vast majority of policing that happens is not done by the actual police, right? You deputize everybody. Um, and the state works in a similar way, right? It's not just the kind of state bureaucrats or the quote unquote government, ha- you know, doing whatever whatever violence they're doing, wherever. It's the way in which we also all internalize and reproduce those logics, right? And, you know, continue the kind of system of hyper surveillance and punishment any and everywhere.
1: Well, thank you so so much for your time today and speaking with me about atmospheres of violence. Um, before we close our conversation, would you like to let listeners know about other projects you might be working on, as well as where they might be able to find your work?
2: Sure. Thank you so much. These are really excellent questions, and I love um, just talking with people and figuring it out together. Um, yeah. So I'm working on this book right now. I don't know when it will be out. Hopefully, well. Now. I would say soon, but that's a lie. Um, at some point on um, trans and queer and gender non-conforming people and armed leftist groups in the 1970s and 80s. Um, so that, yeah. Um, so that's really exciting, and I'm, you know, deep in the research and the thinking around that and questions specifically of like non-sovereignty is what I'm trying to theorize in that. So that that you know, look for that, um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter when I'm not banned. Um, I don't even know what my name is on there. We can find it. Um, Unfortunately, I'm easy to find. Um, But yeah, um, thanks so much for spending this time with me.
1: Thanks. And um, for listeners, I'll add links to all of that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much.